Just ahead on Black Issues Forum, keeping kids safe from COVID and getting ready for child safe vaccines. What a major climate change report means for black communities and Charlotte's step forward on non-discrimination. Stay with us. Welcome to Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt Noel. In the coming weeks, North Carolina public school students will start filing back into classrooms in person. Adults continue to argue the merits of vaccines, masks, and distancing. Meanwhile, a vaccine safe for children is underway. Once it becomes available, however, will parents be ready to make the vaccine decision? for their kids. I'd like to welcome family and general medicine practitioner and co-owner of Durham Family Medicine, Dr. C. Nicole Swiner. Dr. Swiner, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, good morning. Let's talk a little bit about your background because initially when the vaccine came out, you yourself, even as a physician, had your reservations. Tell us what convinced you to go ahead and get the vaccine for yourself. You're absolutely right. Um, you know, the the ones that we know of now, you know, Pfizer and Moderna hit the market sometime in December of 2020. And we'd already been through this crazy year of the pandemic and misinformation and back and forth and, and all the things that we were just trying to figure out on the fly. So when the uh, vaccines made their way to the U.S., saw it on national TV, you know, happen, that first person get the vaccine, you know, I was, was a little you know, I had questions. <laughs> I had questions. And so I wanted to know as much information as possible. I wanted to know the safety. I want to know how the vaccines were made. And to be honest, I waited probably two months after that to get my first dose. Um, I ended up getting Pfizer. Research. So, you did your yeah. research. You Absolutely. had your circle of friends and colleagues. Had conversations with people that were in the lab, involved heavily in the, um, in the makeup and the manufacturing of the vaccines. Absolutely. Terrific. Now let's talk about kids and vaccine. Uh, the current vaccines are safe for individuals aged 12 plus, and scientists are working diligently toward a vaccine that's going to be safe for younger children. Some pediatricians, however, are urging the FDA to reduce the follow-up period for testing to two months rather than waiting the regular six-month period. So we've got this Delta variant hanging out there, and it's it's spreading rapidly. So, so what's the conversation in the medical community concerning reducing this waiting period and the safety of the um, upcoming kid vaccine? Yeah, I mean, when I talk to my patients, you know, many of them are parents, and I, I see a lot of kids in practice, and I have two children myself that are already back in school um, that are uh, under the age of 12, so they're not able to get the, the approved vaccinations at this time. I would say it's about 50-50. You know, if about 50% of the people that I talk to, both in uh, clinic with my patients and with my medical colleagues, note that they are excited. They're excited to, to have the opportunity to have their kids vaccinated because they want to protect them as much as possible, as soon as possible. The other 50% are a little um, hesitant, you know, just as hesitant as some of them were with the adult vaccinations they are uh, for their children, just in terms of the side effects and the long-term complications that might, you know, be related to them. Let's talk about efficacy of strategies right now. So we've got masking available, people talking about that. We've got a vaccine available for adults and people are talking about that. What, what is your understanding of the efficacy of masking? How does that protect 
not only the person, the young person, the student that's in the classroom, but, but everybody else. Talk a little bit about that, particularly with regard to the, the tiny particles mm -hmm. um, and the aerosols that, you know, can't they just get into this mask? So it all depends on the type of mask that a person is wearing and if they are wearing it properly. Um, mask is, you know, mask wearing absolutely is effective, absolutely, in the prevention of transmission of the virus and, and the prevention of becoming infected. So I, for instance, my kids, you know, going back to school, we've now encouraged them to double mask and we've purchased surgical masks. You certainly can look for N95s or KN95s that are thankfully now widely available. In the beginning, we were, you know, scrambling to find PPE and protective equipment, but now you can find them online or go into your stores and they are readily available. But we, my family is back to double masking now just for extra protection. I would much rather you wear a mask of any sort than no mask at all and certainly make sure to cover your entire nose and mouth. Got you. And so when that vaccine um, com becomes available for kids, you know, people are gonna go through this battery of uh, choices and decisions and <clears throat> just concern again. <clears throat> Can we feel fairly confident that enough research has gone on and enough uh, testing's been done that it would be indeed safe? I, you know, again, I would, would still have some questions. You know, I know that, like, as you mentioned, some pediatricians or some in the, the medical community are pushing for that FDA required time instead of six months to be two months. You know, I think we thankfully have a good amount of information from the adult and adolescent studies that we've done for the vaccines that are, are currently available. So we do have some that can transmit to, um, you know, our children. But um, I don't know, I'm kind of in between. I'm, I'm still on the fence and I'm gonna be honest with you, you know, because I, I am a mother, you know. So the doctor part of me says I'm very excited for there to be vaccines available, period. The mom side of me, you know, I don't know if we'll necessarily be first in line, but we'll certainly end up getting vaccinated. I know my husband is very, very, um, you know, he's very interested in our kids being as protected as possible, so. Certainly, you know. and with regard to that decision, I mean, it is a choice at the end of the day uh, that you have to make for your kids, but let's talk also about um, the choice that, that parents are making to go ahead and send them back into the classrooms and, and how that's um, beneficial for their mental development and, and what kids, what parents can be doing to make sure that their kids are emotionally and mentally um, solid as they, you know, go into this new school year, maybe a little less prepared than last year because they've been out for such a long time. Right. What are they needing? Right, so my kids have been extra, extra excited and hype about getting back in the, the classroom with their friends and being, you know, seeing their faces, you know. So what I'm trying to do is trying to balance uh, my excitement for them and my, um, you know, uh, my happiness that they're able to be in that social setting with, you know, teaching them to be cautious. Um, I also don't want to give them too much, you know, panic or anxiety about what's happening in the world. But so I think we have a healthy balance. If nothing else, you really just have to encourage your kids to keep their masks on. I know it's going to be really hard, especially for, for young kids, to remember the importance of keeping that mask on and trying not to be, you know, too close all the time to their friends. Is but that psychologically, <clears throat> excuse me, 
Is that psychologically damaging to be wearing the mask? Some people are worried, you know, oh, they're having to wear a mask and they're feeling inhibited and unwanted and that kind of thing. What are your thoughts about that? I don't think so. You know, I, I have an eight and a 10 year old and they um, are at this point, they're, they're pretty much professionals at wearing the mask. I, and I don't think it's inhibited their interaction with their friends at all. Um, I think being in person is, is always better than being on, on a screen. Um, so the fact that they're in the same room with their, their peers, I think makes a huge difference. So no, I don't think a mask gets in the way of them being able to appropriately um, have good psychological connections to their, their friends. I don't think that. And in the last few seconds, for those who have made that choice not to get a vaccine, what's your best advice for them to keep themselves safe from COVID as well as others? Yeah, so I've been using this metaphor since the beginning of the pandemic. I actually borrowed it from a patient, uh, a war veteran uh, told me this. He said, if we're at war and you're going outside, why wouldn't you wear your bulletproof vest, right? So why wouldn't you protect yourself? Yes, you may still get injured, but at least you have a better chance of survival. And that's exactly the way I feel about the vaccine. Um, we've had months and months and months, over a year of evidence and research that the vaccinations do work, that masking does work. So please do those things. And if you have any questions or concern, ask your medical professionals. Do not rely on the internet. Do not rely on what your friends are telling you. Please talk to your trusted medical professional and have that conversation. Dr. C. Nicole Swiner, thank you so much for your time and your advice. Thank you. This week, the IPCC Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released a report with grim news for our world's future unless there's swift and dramatic action to control climate change. For decades, influences on climate change have had direct and devastating impacts on communities of color. So let's get some more perspective from our panel. Uh, and I want to welcome political analyst Steve Rao. Lamicia Whittington of Advance Carolina and Dr. Danielle Purifoy, assistant professor in the Department of Geography at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. But first, I want to share that right here in North Carolina, we have our own challenges with the kinds of emissions that are culprits in negative climate change, namely gas and methane from hog waste. I mean, we like our bacon, right? Governor Cooper recently signed into law Senate Bill 605, which allows the Environmental Management Commission to develop a general permit giving hog farmers permission to build and operate farm digesters. Of this legislation, State Representative Jimmy Dixon of Duplin County, the top hog producing county in North Carolina, said this bill is a common sense approach to maintaining a safe, economical, sustainable supply of food in North Carolina. Senator Jay Chowdhury of Wake County opposed the bill, however, saying that he believes there is a real environmental justice component to the North Carolina Farm Act. Now, this bill, uh, once again, is, they said, is a common sense approach. Let me get on to our questions. I want to open up with you, uh, Dr. Purifoy. What are your thoughts on policies for climate change that affect not only the climate, but predominantly black communities. What's happening there? Yeah, so thank you for having me. Um, so this bill um, is really damaging for a number of reasons. Um, first, um, the idea that biogas is some form of sustainable or renewable energy is just false. Um, it is um, predicated on years, uh, decades really, of um, really toxic hog industry practices of 
um, saddling black and brown communities with hog waste. Um, and now the idea is that you are going to take that same waste and turn it into um, energy. Um, and this idea that it's renewable is predicated on the existence, right? The continued existence of these toxic industries um, that if so, um, for so long, um, uh, sprayed waste um, directly on the homes of black and brown residents who are living um, uh, nearby these facilities, um, contaminated the water supply um, and so forth. And so um, actually opening the door, right, for this kind of, a blanket general permit for um, these anaerobic uh, digesters um, really opens the door towards the um, increased proliferation of these farms, which we actually right now have a moratorium on. Um, and so there's nothing renewable about it. Um, furthermore, biogas um, is basically methane and carbon dioxide, two of our three top greenhouse gases that contribute to climate change. So if we're actually interested in um, uh, what the IPCC is saying um, about climate change impacts, we actually need to go in a different direction altogether in terms of alternatives to fossil fuels. Thank you so much. And you know, this, what you're saying is not disconnected to some recent action with regard to infrastructure legislation. Steve, Congress is on the verge of passing uh, yet another infrastructure package. Uh, AOC fought hard for a Green New Deal and progressives faced a lot of criticism for pushing for a Green New Deal. How would you say climate change um, addressed this most recent iteration? And do you think that the timing of the release of the IPCC report will give some leverage to, to Biden's effort to get this $3.2 trillion plan passed? Well, first of all, I, <clears throat> I think it's a great first step and achievement for this Democratic president to achieve bipartisan consensus and get a deal done, the $1.7 trillion, which is going to you know, basically uh, upgrade our br bridges or roads. It does make some initial investments in uh, green energy, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. But the bottom line is this, this new UN report uh, was a shocker, I mean, in terms of the fact that we're in code red. And, you know, we have two options in the United States and around the world. We can continue to uh, pump carbon gases into our atmosphere, and we'll see more droughts, more fires, uh, putting a billion people on our planet at risk of, you know, just uh, severe weather. Uh, or we can make significant changes, and it's really going to take big investments. So I do think that this will give us better leverage uh, for having more of a Green New Deal in this Democratic $3.5 trillion uh, blueprint. And I'll just give you a couple of examples. You know, for example, the president wants to expand uh, to about 500,000 electric vehicles and reduce carbon emissions in the United States by 50 percent by the year 2030. We only have 43,000 charging stations. So I like the $3.5 trillion plan that's basically saying instead of only investing seven uh, you know, billion dollars, we're going to invest $37 billion for electric vehicles. We're going to invest $198 billion for clean energy. We're going to do another $135 billion for reducing carbon emissions, reducing uh, 
uh, forest fires. So the amount of investments are significant, and it's going to take those kinds of investments to address climate change. And it, it does tie into the first question about minority communities, because at the end of the day, it's about job creation, creating new jobs for everybody, uh, addressing uh, ra racial equity. And, you know, the fact of the matter is that if you don't have clean water and if you don't have clean air, many of these minority communities uh, don't have a voice. And, you know, people are losing their homes. You know, California lost 500,000 acres in, in a fire. Right. Uh, you know, so anyway, I so, hope, yeah. So that, I, yeah. Yeah, and, and I'm sorry to cut you off, no. but, but you were beginning to connect the dots for us, and I wanted you to... Uh, uh, Lamicia continue to connect those dots because someone would some would say, "Listen, we've got natural disasters that are happening. The world is evolving. Mother Nature does not discriminate. So why why are we trying to tie racism and um, equity to climate change?" Right. So the impact of what we're looking at with climate change didn't just happen overnight. So when we talk about the historical grounding of this nation, let's talk about plantations that were actually the same form of corporations today. There was industrial plantations that uh, had enslaved people on it that were tobacco mills, cotton mills. It actually did the same emissions. We don't discuss that. Those plantations and that same land was then converted into newer industries post-emancipation. That means the same poison, the same toxin that was put in the soil, the same emissions that were happening from those plantations were now corporations. And so what we're looking at is areas like the Black Belt in East North Carolina, other rural communities that are most marginalized communities of color, they are also living in the area. They're the descendants, right? So guess what? These corporations built on former slave plantations, they're still paying slave wages to the Black descendants of the ancestors who were enslaved on that same land. And on top of that, these dirty corporations, as Dr. Perfoy already said, it's an honor to be up here with you, these corporations are killing the same communities through these emissions, these harmful poisons. We are number one and two in the nation for corporate hog industrial production. We have more hogs than people. It's 40 to one. That's capitalism, racism combined. And I do want to give honor to elder and now ancestor, Ms. Elsie Herring, who fought until her last breath against these corporations and won lawsuits against a large corporation. The manipulation of this farm bill, let's be very clear, it has nothing to do with small family farms. I come from a long line of rural farmers. This has nothing to do with family farms or small farms. These are large industrial corporations who were tired of the people protesting and winning lawsuits. And this bill stops and halts certain permits. So it limits how much the people can actually wage lawsuits for the filth that they have put in our communities and the emissions that is adding to the climate emissions, which is what's making the United States number two in the world for the worst greenhouse gas emissions. That's where it's tied. So when we talk about greenhouse gas emissions and the Green New Deal, so forth, Dr. Purifoy, you know, bring it home to North Carolina. Share with us a little bit of what's happening right here in our state, right in our own backyards, um, that really demands the Green New Deal, perhaps, and certainly some dramatic measures uh, toward um, um, more green practices. Sure. So as you just heard Lamisha say, um, one of the things that's really important is that we have um, this massive um, 
uh, industrial agricultural complex, right? That's not just hog farms, it's, um, it's, it's poultry um, farms, and you can't even call them farms, they're factories, right? That are guised as farms. Um, those are really massive contributors to climate change. Um, you know, people talk about energy and that's certainly number one and really important for us to think about, but agriculture is um, very close behind um, energy in terms of, um, in terms of production of greenhouse gases. So what that means, um, in addition to these acute um, impacts that communities are um, uh, experiencing through water contamination, air contamination, that impact them acutely on a day-to-day -day basis, long-term, those are the same communities that are gonna be impacted by things like flooding, right? The way that um, segregation has worked historically in our communities is that um, black and brown communities have been placed in floodplains, right? Which means that when we have these catastrophic weather events, um, there's gonna be more flooding. In cities, um, one of the ways that this manifests is through, um, for black and brown communities is through things like heat island effect. Um, so there's a lot of impervious surface, concrete, right? Um, right. And then the effect, agree, right. uh, and once again, I'm sorry to interrupt you. One of the okay. other impacts is, is on our health. And so then you yeah. have health health disparities that are affected by um, by unclean energy practices. And and I we only have about a minute left here, but I want to bring you back here, Steve, to talk about this Green New Deal and what the investment in that might mean for black and brown communities. Well, I think it's going to help black and brown communities because, you know, if you more if you aggressively invest in dealing with uh, addressing this climate change, uh, you are going to provide uh, better, cleaner, uh, cleaner air, cleaner water, uh, and 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 in poor communities, and also housing. You know, if you lose your house through a fire or a terrible storm, uh, how are you going to rebuild your house, your community, uh, and in, in the middle of a pandemic as well, as we are still dealing with raging Delta variants. So, uh, these, these black communities are so affected by climate change. And I think what this Green Deal does is, is make these investments. You know, we are looking at, you know, I'll end with this. You know, one of my favorite books is Bill Gates's book on climate change. I never thought I would see the founder of Microsoft talk about how he's invested over $2 billion in climate. Everything is going to change. Plant, more plant-based meats, uh, you know, uh, less impervious surface, uh, where we dine, you know, how much parking is going to be there, because all of these things are producing so much carbon in the air. And, you know, I think we're going to really have to incentivize um, our nation and also provide more to other countries around the world. You Absolutely. Know, but, and but black communities are really affected by this. And each person and each nation is going to have to do its part. Absolutely. This week, the city of Charlotte turned a corner from its old HB2 days with a vote in favor of a new non-discrimination ordinance goes into effect October 1st. Dr. Purifoy, what do you think this ordinance effectively means for the city of Charlotte and its reputation? Well, I think it goes um, some part of the way towards mending the, the reputation of the city. I noticed that there are several, um, a few other cities actually in North Carolina that have passed similar non-discrimination ordinances. Um, I think, you know, really honoring the basic dignity of LGBT 
um, Q communities um, is uh, core at um, ending violence against, for instance, uh, tran transgender um, women that we've seen, Black transgender women in particular that we've seen. So I think it's, um, it's positive um, and we still have a really long way to go um, before we see the full dignity realized for um, these communities. So, so far, reports seem congratulatory. Steve, what are your thoughts? First of all, I, I'm not so concerned about Charlotte's image. I mean, I commend them for having the courage of any city to take on discrimination of any sort, particularly those uh, of the LGBT community. There are other ordinances that currently prevent employers from discriminating on race, gender, and ethnicity. So I don't see a problem with it. However, the challenge is, you know, under the law right now, it, cities only they get all their authority from the state. So we know where this could head, where, you know, basically they pass an ordinance, it gets struck down in court, the General Assembly could go in. That's how HB2 happened. Uh, this isn't as overreaching as uh, what, you know, initiated HB2, the whole HB2 situation. But, you know, I think it does come down to, you know, uh, if you can't win the battle, is it worth fighting the, you know, is it worth fighting the fight um, if we know that the General Assembly would go in and strike it down? And clearly, I think what has to happen, in my opinion, is cities shouldn't be in this position. A city, whether it's Charlotte or Raleigh or Cary or any city in this great state, shouldn't be afraid of passing ordinances that are fighting against discrimination, like Dr. Portfoy said. It's the right thing. But what has to happen is the state of North Carolina has to make sure that LGBT and these things are protected statuses in our state constitution, in our state law, so that it wouldn't be illegal for a city to pass ordinance. So in my gotcha. opinion, gotcha. we need a new speaker of the House, we need a new Senate majority leader <laughs> that are Democrats that would support that and make that happen in North Carolina. L.A., what are your thoughts on it? Um, I really absolutely in agreement. Um, last year's federal uh, law change around the Title IX is what allowed for the discrimination clause, non-discrimination clause to actually be a reality uh, because that's what persuaded the majority of the city council in Charlotte to vote for that non-discrimination order. Okay, this was five years after the bathroom bill, which was a national plague and a shame. It was 400 million plus dollars lost for our economy and job loss that has now, we feel the resounding impact even more so in pandemic, in addition to targeting transgender people. In addition to this non-discrimination order, it also protects familial status, pregnancy, veteran status, and natural hairstyles. Uh, these are non-discrimination clauses that should have been added a century ago. We're behind times. And so here's the thing, though. While it is great, it is largely symbolic if there are no enforcement components. Right now, there's no enforcement. So it's symbolic. So what is symbolism going to get us beyond performative distraction? So we have to be very clear in the honor of Jada Peterson and Remy Fennell, right, to Black transgendered women who were murdered, we have to be very clear there needs to be enforcement for us to actually ground what it means not to be discriminated against. So we have a long way to go, but I'm glad this is at least the first step. Absolutely. Lamisha Whittington, Steve Rao, and Dr. Danielle Purifoy, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. I want to thank all of today's guests. We invite you to engage with us on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag Black Issues Forum. You can also find our full episodes on pbsnc.org slash Black Issues Forum or listen at any time on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. For Black Issues Forum, I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. Thanks for watching.
quality public television is made possible through the financial contributions of viewers like you, who invite you to join them in supporting PBSNC.